This is Paul Cameron, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Hey, Ben, uh, it's going really well. How's it going with you? Quarantastic. I'm uh, here in the, uh, it, it, as we're recording it, probably the hottest day of this year. Uh, it was 108 degrees in the valley. Well, uh, yesterday they say uh, hottest place on earth was Death Valley at 130 degrees Fahrenheit. They said that, that was actually the hottest temperature on record anywhere on the earth any ever. Day. Yes, I heard that too. Pretty, pretty yeah. brutal. And that's I like to remember though, in 2006... Mm-hmm. And I remembered very clearly it was 117 degrees oh, yeah. uh, here in the valley. Hottest day I've ever spent. And I went to see a movie. I probably shouldn't mention what the name of the movie was. But if you look at what was out in 2006, possibly the most reviled movie of that year, mm-hmm. uh, I just went to see it because I knew the place would be air conditioned. And even though my house is air conditioned, uh, no house air conditioning unit is going to get 117 degrees down to like a livable temperature. No, and uh, this pandemic has really, really been tough, I think, on theaters because not only are there no movies or not the number of movies or the number of theaters open, but like the desperate souls like yourself in 2006 who just had to escape the heat can't even do that now. Well, luckily it wasn't 117 yet, but we're in the middle of a pretty nasty uh, heat wave here. So, uh, Ilya, who is on the show today? On the show today is Paul Cameron, uh, both Oh, yeah, wow. both uh, DP and director of an episode of the uh, most recent uh, Westworld. I'm sure you probably watched Westworld on, on HBO. You're fine. I do. And this is an interview you conducted. It is. It's an interview right? I conducted. Because I have, I have no recollection of talking. Uh, <laughs> nor, nor should you, because I, it was me. And uh, <laughs> and Paul, of course, uh, came on the show because he was nominated for an Emmy Award for the, the, work, the work that he did. And uh, yeah, and uh, let's get into the close focus, which I think is going to be an interest to a lot of our listeners because we have a lot of uh, professional crew people, uh, a lot of people who work in the, the technical arts who listen to the show. And uh, there's a big movement currently underway, at least on certain levels, to get back to work. You know, pandemic be damned, they're finding ways to get back to work. Some of them more safely than others uh some of them uh with better results than others but yeah but i mean there's been quite a bit of uh ink spilled in the last uh, couple of weeks about this too uh especially about movies big movies like jurassic park with like a crew of 700 getting back uh to work which is probably you know the the biggest uh guinea pig well and to my yeah. knowledge none of these are in los angeles like none of them are even in the united states really the big ones Correct. Uh, I, at least not that I'm aware of. Yeah, most of them are not. But, you know, it's really interesting, too, if you just kind of like Google COVID-19 and infections and stuff now, you sort of get like these who's who's of people who've been infected, including like several uh, actors and celebrities and people like that. I saw that Antonio Banderas was recently like infected. Mm. So it's like um, it's really interesting. So Jurassic Park, they decided to like take over a hotel and make everyone who work at the hotel get tested three times a week and basically declared like the hotel a bubble and you didn't have to wear a mask. You didn't have to be socially distant. Uh, people brought in their uh, family. They quarantined everyone for weeks before they could they could go to set. And then set became another bubble. And uh, basically like sort of like covid 
proof zones, but if you have to go through a bunch of steps too, including like uh, you know temperature taking and all kinds of other things. Have you have you been following any of this, Ben? Yeah, I've been following it, and as you know, uh, my legendary love of sports, uh, <laughs> which is to say, I don't watch any sports, sports ball. We talked about that last week. Super bored by sports, but. The NBA, uh, I've been kind of following how the NBA has holed up in my hometown of Orlando, Florida, and basically all NBA games are being done in Orlando, and they're in a bubble like this. And I think they're literally given like some kind of a barcode bracelet or something, and if they walk out of the bubble, you know, like... I don't, I don't, I, I think security comes out. Like they're not allowed to leave their, their hotel room or whatever, except to go to the games. And then they go back to their hotel rooms, everybody. And they and it's, it's exactly what you're describing. And I feel, you know, like compare the NBA, which I think has had zero new cases of COVID during this experiment. And also they're given tests every day. In fact, they created a brand new test for the NBA. Mm. Um, that is a saliva test. So they don't have to do that one where they put the, the swab in, into your brain directly th- up your nose. And so they're able to test people quickly. The test it takes like 30 minutes. Everyone gets tested all the time. And so I think there have been zero cases compared to baseball where immediately right out of the gate, a bunch of people got COVID because they weren't doing this. And, and this has to be how you make a movie. Honestly, it's the only sane way to make a movie during, during a pandemic, except to just not make a movie. They're also making uh, The Matrix 4 right now. I think they're shooting it in Germany. If you want some more information on this, at least the sort of like official uh, guidelines from the Industry-Wide Labor Management Safety Committee, that just rolls off the tongue, the IWLMSC, you can find a link at filmla.com forward slash COVID-19. We can put it in the show notes as well. Yeah, we will put that in, but I'm going to, I'm reading it out here for that lazy person who doesn't want to go read the show notes and has a great memory, and they can just go and, Mm. I can, I can No problem. Yeah. Yeah. Memorize it all. So, uh, so here's the thing. Yeah, there's a link to that guide and uh, there are some people who are following that to the letter and there are people who are doing other stuff that is even more stringent including the frequent testing including the bubble sort of work now a bubble may not be practical for someone who's shooting a one or a two day commercial but uh, we can also put a link up to a very interesting article that uh, a client and associate of mine shot recently where um, they were using these special bracelets that would measure your temperature while you're wearing the bracelet and your blood oxygen level like all the time so it was like constantly giving you like I mean, that's okay, but it's like only really part of the picture because you could have COVID and you could be asymptomatic and not have a fever and have no problems, but still be shedding the virus and spreading it. So to me, temperature is only one indicator. Like, yes, they should should check temperature. Yeah, we're not saying that this this is not the only thing they were doing. Also, the crew size was extremely reduced and they did Mandalorian style virtual sets. So there was almost nobody on set at a time. And this was all by design. And in fact, they they say in the article that they actually blew through it so much faster than they otherwise would have because there was no finding it on the day. Everything was very, very detail oriented, exactly how they were going to do it, exactly how they're going to do it. And then they just executed they just executed and they wrapped early and that's it's certainly a that's way good. that you can you can change I mean, your your production i mean you say it's not necessarily practical to do it for a commercial but i think it i mean two weeks commercial. of quarantine in a bubble might not be practical for a one-day commercial maybe not but it, i mean you know it, it's it, it's taking a a one-day th- basically probably your your prep time expanding it a little bit and making it all bubbled it would suck but honestly i'd rather do that than not work i mean you know I, I feel I, like I don't think producers are going to want to pay people for for 
two weeks of i guess that's fair but like right now i'm you know most of us are sort of in a bubble in our own homes i mean what's the difference well there's a big difference but actually that's a perfect segue into what another one of hot red cameras clients and a friend of the show but on the show adam lisa gore and his team at sandwich video did Mm -hmm. sandwich video uh they put together a commercial for slack actually months ago they did a whole production where all of the different crew members and cast members were at home and they literally shipped packages of gear that they got from Hot Rod. They got the packages of gear that would show up at the doorstep and they ri- figured out ways to rig all of this gear so that... Wait, where did they get the gear from? Yeah, that was Hot Rod cameras. So, okay. Yeah, so but so they, they sent the gear to the cast and the crew who were often one and the same and the director of photography created little videos and you can watch... We'll put it in the show notes, but a fantastic BTS where they oh, it's he goes, really interesting where they go through and he shows him like, OK, so this is a C stand. And he's like, I'm creating 10 DPs right now because I'm going to give people basic instructions on how to actually light this and have it look OK and how, where to set the camera. It looks they, really good. No, the, it, the, the, the spot came out looking very good. It, it's all shot on little black magic cinema cameras. And they did a cool thing where they rigged up phones so he could see the screen so they could see the yeah. settings and everything else. And it's really smart. It's a smart way to do it. And uh, literally for with five to 10 minutes of your time. You can watch both the finished product and the BTS and get a, a real insight on how creative, uh, intelligent people are making the best out of a bad situation. And I, to my knowledge, Sandwich is, is fully operational, doing what they do, completely decentralized now. And I can't think of too many production companies that are doing that, but I bet people will watch this and more will be doing it soon. And for anyone who's not working on like a large scripted production... I think you're going to see a lot more of this and sandwich is really going to be sort of the uh, the prototype in which other people will emulate going forward. Well, and the actual commercial that, that they make is for Slack, but Slack, which is something I have been using for uh, basically every project I work on for the last six years, practically, is like designed for times like right now. And it's it's really good for decentralized stuff. I mean, like we I, I know we set up one for the cinematography podcast and we don't really use it because there's only really three of us who ever need to communicate. And it's just easier to do it on Facebook Messenger. Um, You're giving away our secrets. I am. It's all on <laughs> Facebook Messenger. But for projects where a lot of people have to contribute and, and people are like when I was doing Video Palace and we had, you know, probably like eight or nine people who are in the core team and then more people on top of that who needed to have information disseminated to them and you needed to get scripts and blah, blah, blah. Slack is the way to go. And it really is a pretty straightforward virtual office. And I'm saying this without having been paid by Slack to say so. <laughs> I think I think Slack is a great piece of software. And uh, I guess they also have video chat. Even though here we are using Zoom, we could be doing it on Slack. Uh, I've, I've never tried it. But regardless, watch the sandwich video for Slack. Watch their BTS. It's great. Now, it's not just smaller uh, commercial productions and large uh, studio productions uh, features, which are, are, are back. Soap operas are back. And there's a really, really interesting sort of expose on how soap operas are dealing with COVID. Because, of course, there's a lot of uh, kissing in particular in soap operas. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, you know... Uh, personal space that is uh, violated through all kinds of also, soap opera. Also, like soap operas notoriously shoot like 30 pages a day. That, that's right. A lot. So uh, actually, the, I think 30 pages a day would be a, a short day on a soap opera. You, you probably couldn't more, make you couldn't get I, it done for the only 30. I, th- pages. I, th- I think it's like 60 pages a day. It, it's, I, it, I mean, it's, it's insane how many pages a day they shoot on a soap opera. So, so they've gotten clever. They've gotten rid of stand-ins, which I'm, I'm sorry for stand-ins uh, that, that, that may have lost their jobs. They have had 
started bringing in mannequins and placing mannequins where where human stand-ins would have been. And for kissing scenes in particular, they're uh, putting spouses in in wigs and makeup and shooting them from the back of the head to have uh, a spouse kiss their spouse actor and then uh, you know hide the fact of who that is. And you know, frankly, wow. yeah, it's a uh, it's interesting. So um, I mean, they should I, go the the next level and just do, deep fake it. They should just like <laughs> deep fake your spouse to look like your co-star. You know, you, you say that now, but it's uh, it's it's probably already in the works. <laughs> I'm not joking. Deepfake is pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think um, yeah, but I mean, you know, I, I wonder if it's taken a hit on like the, the page count that they can do. But I mean, you know, probably if you're a soap opera and you ordinarily shoot one hundred and nine hundred twelve thousand pages a day and this takes you down to only nine hundred pages a day, you know, then, you know. You're like, well, it's a it's a fair compromise. We get to keep making the soap opera. You know, you know, there's uh, there there's like seven hundred thousand jobs that they say is directly tied to the motion picture and television industry, and uh, I'm sure there's probably some ancillary fields that are are directly related, like uh, commercial and that sort of thing. But uh, regardless, that's an awful lot of work, and we were all declared essential workers by the governor Gavin Newsom. So uh, yeah, that work is is going forward. Wait, I, actually, I hadn't heard that. So, oh, you so hadn't heard that? Yeah, Gavin News. Entertainment is considered essential. Correct. Entertainment, uh, people working in entertainment, is now considered essential. Interesting. Yeah, that I mean, that just happened uh, this past week. I I don't I can't believe I missed that. Here we yeah, are th- having a real biggie. moment on the podcast. <laughs> so real, I had no idea. <laughs> oh yes, yeah, that's a that that's a thing. Uh, I don't know exactly how I feel about that, um, but you know, uh, the I, people. I got to be honest. Who, I don't. I don't think sports and entertainment really are essential. You know, like I, I feel like you know, food and medicine are essential. The people who work at the gas station, the people who work at the grocery store, they all got declared essential. As did now the entertainment industry workers. So hey, yeah. I knew that if I kept doing this long enough, I'd be somebody. I'm essential. <laughs> You're essential now. Mm. All yeah, right, but so. but I, I still think it's. Uh, I mean, these are all great things, and and I and I know that everyone's going back to set, you know, being extremely safe about how they do everything. But I, uh, you know, part of me just, I'm just really afraid for you know, whatever show it's going to happen. Some show is going to have a huge outbreak of COVID, and you know, the star, the director, the DP, somebody, somebody high up and important is going to is going to be hospitalized or god forbid die and it's going to wind all this back and make us all go really essential although i i really have been wondering since this all started if we all took reasonable precautions and a hundred percent of us wore masks and wore them correctly could we go back to most of what we were doing it's a great question. It's a hypothetical. I don't know. Uh, um, maybe. Uh, I, I think that, though, my answer is probably exactly what I was going to say about why the bubbles are dangerous is that you're going to get somebody who doesn't take it seriously. You're going to get someone who thinks that they can bend the rules, sneak around. You know, That's get why some... in the NBA they've like set up all these insane precautions to prevent that from happening. Yeah, uh, I, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. He gave his recommendation to a, a local film program that said, how do you think we should uh, address this film school thing? And he said, get a hotel and put everyone in it. And it's going to be a, uh, you know, a learn and stay uh, situation. And uh, I don't I think that only works until one person screws it up and then then that all goes away. So I don't know. Mm. I, I don't know what, what how insurance is going to deal with all this, but um, it will certainly be interesting to watch. Well, hopefully there will be a vaccine sooner than later and we won't have to worry about it that much longer. 
Russia announced they have one, so it's clearly <laughs> Russia, only a matter Russia of time. announced they skipped phase three trials. But this is not the <laughs> epidemiology uh, podcast. It's the cinematography podcast. So I will not go into a rant about why you need phase three trials. Um, <laughs> All right. So no phase three trials. Uh, uh, no, no more talks about vaccine. Let's get to the interview with Paul Cameron. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Paul Cameron, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. Oh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. I have a stock question that I, sure. I basically start off all my interviews with. Since you ended up with me instead of Ben, you get my question. Uh, ben Ben has his own question. But, but my question for you is this. I believe that the best cinematographers, the people out there who are, who are real masters of their game, are part artist and part plumber. Now, where you come down on that line of between the art and the technical uh, will, will be different and will be different for everyone. And there's not saying that there's one right way to be, uh, although I do believe that if you're all the way artist and zero plumber or all the way plumber and zero artist, it probably doesn't make for, for the best uh, sort of hybridization that you need in order to do your job. On that spectrum between artist mm-hmm. and plumber, where, where do you say you, you come down? Do you, you think you're right in the middle? You think you're more to one well, side or another? I'd love to say I'm, you know, lean more toward the artist side for sure. I mean, everything's got to be come from an artistic, creative point of view. Everything, you know, and it's it's only through your experience and your use of technology and your your, your you know how you keep up on new technology and um, how you apply it to your craft and grow with it is really determines how much of a plumber you are, you know, and um, you know the certainly you know being a good plumber helps too, and I I think you know I I am very involved with the technology and I've always been I think kind of on the forefront of, of technology cinematography wise and plan to plan to continue to be on that on that edge you know so that's good. Yeah, um, you know, looking at your filmography, I, I'm familiar with with a, a lot of the work that you've done. Would you say that you have a niche? Would you say that you uh, feel pigeonholed in the action thriller <laughs> department? Because well, uh, I, now that you put it that way, I think so. I mean, it's you know, it's look, we all do our films and our projects, and we all wish we did other types of films. And you know, I'm certainly happy with the films I've I, I've done. And yes, they've leaned a bit towards towards action thrillers, and you know, they tend to be uh, visual and a different way and you know certainly collaborating with people like Don Sen and Tony Scott for a number of years you know they brought me into that that action thing but I've kind of going out of that now which is interesting and and uh, just did a, a film which is a romantic thriller with very little action you'd be happy to know so <laughs> uh, well not necessarily I happen to love the action yeah, thriller genre so yeah. and I was gonna say it's a really enviable position I think a lot of people would 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 kill to be the uh, you know to, to be the action thriller guy and so and and you get to enjoy that position yeah. because you, you have had you know you've been doing it for for a long time now you've been doing uh, a, a lot of that stuff and uh, yeah I, but but sure. l- well let me ask Okay, so mm-hmm. so you're diversifying. You're getting into uh, a romantic thriller now. There's still this the thriller aspect, but what do you think makes for a good action thriller visually? Like if, if your particular stamp, which I, I think you've got one of, mm-hmm. of, of a lot of contrast and a lot of darkness and a lot of, and I mean, which for me is like that's fun. That's really that's really good mm-hmm. stuff. But but there are so many memorable dark action thrillers. Would you, would you right. say that? Uh, yeah, what would for you, sure. What would you say? I mean, what, yeah, what what do you bring? Well, to I that? think but, speaking from. You know, for myself, it's it's always like you you go for the story first, you know, and it, I think it really you know kind of really gelled for me at a movie, Man on Fire, with 
with Tony Scott, where, oh, yeah. where you know the the story was you know certainly the, the the most important thing, but also the the action aspect of it and the kind of violence of it and how that emanated from a you know Denzel's psychological state of mind of depression and alcoholism. So it's you know then it then it's good. I mean I think what's successful for me are when great action thrillers or you don't really look at the action and think about the action as much as you think about the thriller you think about the story and you know we're, we're seeing that you know like um, in many films lately so and quite honestly I've been in movie theaters lately where the action scenes come on and I see people checking their texts it's, so it's, as, <laughs> it's as if they've seen so much great action in the last 10 years that that's the part that they know is going to go on for three minutes and they can just check their texts and then they're going to figure it out at the end of the action sequence. So <laughs> let's hope that's not the case or the, or the future there. Uh, yeah, yeah, not, not at all. Um, it, well, let's, let's jump back a little bit in time. We'll come back mm-hmm. to the, the action thriller stuff, but um, uh, where did you get the bug? When did you know that like, this was going to be your career? Uh, I know you've been, you've been shooting stuff uh, all the way back since the, uh, the mid-'80s. Um, yeah. when, did you, uh, when did you decide that this was going to be your, your calling? Jeez. I think... You know, I knew I was at a, you know, long story short, State University in New York at SUNY Purchase outside of Manhattan. My partner and I, Charlie, live in friend. At school, we heard the B-52s were going to play, and we decided to take a bunch of equipment and personnel down and, and uh, film the band. And uh, unfortunately, you know, it was a very successful Super 16 film, except Charlie and I were both kicked out of university for using equipment and, and personnel. So, wait, wait, a second, the, wait a second, wait, let's take a step yeah, back. So that, that, <laughs> so that you, was you, kind of, you know, that was kind of like that, that, that gave me the bug, you know, first thing I get the bug of, you know, she, and, and the, the beautiful thing is one of my operators was Ed Lockman and oh, Stefan, wow. and, and Stefan Chapsky gaffed it for me. So, wow. you know, it, it was, it was quite a, quite an empowering experience for both myself and the students that, that were part of it. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I, I, the school had a policy against you uh, actually shooting something or going out and shooting something. Where, where, where did you break the rules? Well, let's just say we utilized the equipment and a couple of vehicles from the state university system to empower our fellow <laughs> students. <laughs> I, but, I see. You, know, you have I mean, to, you quite have honestly, to... <laughs> it was like the traveling troupe. It's like Goethe's traveling troupe. You know, it was like you know a, a bunch of artists. You know, getting into a couple of vans and going down and and uh, filming a live band but I mean that the thing that happened with that is you know we, we got booted out of school so we had a year of intensive work in New York City and we shot many many music videos and live concerts of at Hurrah specifically and you know mm. but it was also living in New York you know I, uh, the bug was a bit earlier you see you know I'd see the likes of Scorsese and and, and Alan and the, and the crews shooting on the streets there and I, I had nobody in the in my family in the business and I didn't know anybody in the business but I basically it was the record when the six foot four uh, marine guidance counselor at high school asked me what I was going to do, and I looked at him and I said, I, "I'm going to go to film school," you know. <laughs> so there was only a few at the time, and I ended up not being able to afford, uh, you know, the private ones. So I ended up at SUNY Purchase, which was fabulous. Yeah, they're, they're known for having a good program. I mean, they're they're yeah, in the, they're, 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 so so uh, yeah. Well, uh, okay. So uh, you're kicked out of school. Then you've got a, a year, a year of intense, intensive <laughs> yeah. work, sort of in uh, the, yeah. the New York scene. It sounds like shooting a lot of live stuff. Yes. Uh, I, I know you've got some uh, some television uh, movies in, in the uh, early '90s on your under your belt. Oh, yeah. oh, how, how do how do you go from shooting sort of live event club type stuff to shooting uh, shooting scripted drama? 
I knew commercials and music videos were going to be big. And I, I, you know, in that year, um, that displaced year, I made the decision to go into NABIT, which was a, a union sure. in New York City there. And, you know, strangely enough, uh, I didn't pass the assistant test, but three weeks later, I screened as a DP and got into NABIT, uh, who, you know, later, the union later folded into IA, but I got in as a director of photography then. So I wanted, you know, wanted to do this work in commercials. I knew it was going to be big and music videos were just starting and, you know, Steve Ross and MTV were just starting things up. So it was, you know, it was an exciting time. And I, you know, walked into the Gersh agency, met Tom Turley and David Gersh, showed them, you know, a couple spec spots and some rock and roll. And they said, come back when you, you know, when you're, when you've got something to show. And I said, I just showed you stuff. <laughs> and uh, I left and they called me a couple days later and they said, let's give it a shot. And within two weeks I was shooting for Bob Giraldi and Jeff Lovinger commercials in New York. And then, All right. you know, made my way West and, you know, started some bigger music videos. And I, you know, I stepped back at one point and I, pulled focus and operated for Ron Fortunato, a DP in New York, who's, who, you know, just to, to have a little mentorship there. And then I just said, what the hell? And I made the jump into to shooting. And I, you know, again, I, you know, as you mentioned, I did a couple of pilots and TV movies in, in the nineties that were, it didn't really interest me because it was much more network vibe and the schedules were very tight and uh, it wasn't about the art so much as the, the product. So I waited to do a little television after that. <laughs> I, I, I gotcha. Well, let, let's talk about what, I, at least according to IMDb, is your first real uh, theatrical feature, The Last Supper, which, uh, God, I saw it on video. And at the time, in 95, I was working in a video store. So, uh, But oh, I was a huge, huge Ron Perlman fan, right. too, so I wanted to see oh, everything yeah, that, that, that Ron did. So, uh, uh -huh. yeah, that was, um, yeah, so it was very memorable. It was a cool movie. And oh, thanks. It, yeah, it was fun. It was a, nobody, you know, very, very challenging film. You know, we shot in, I think, 15 days or something and stayed title directed it and but it was a great experience you know Cameron Diaz and Ron, uh, Paxton was in it Bill Paxton um, sure. we had a good go at it yeah it also looks like it kind of started you down this uh, dark action thriller path and stuff. And uh, mm -hmm. the, the next the next big movie that was, uh, you know, an action film, uh, Gone in 60 Seconds. And that was a huge Nicolas Cage movie and, and mm -hmm. all that stuff. So uh, so now, you know, you've you've definitely got some thriller. You've got some action. You've got some s stuff under your belt. Uh, and then Swordfish right right on the heels of that. It's like I, I feel like you're th these are sort of like the formative years of you being formed into like, you know, this go to guy for, for for action and, and thriller, and really, I think, catapults you into a lot of the other stuff that you do later, like uh, Collateral mm -hmm. and Deja Vu and, and you name it. So having the benefit of having so many people associate you with doing this sort of stuff, is there like trick to the trade? Is there a certain thing that you always like to try to go to, or is it is it totally driven by story? The story affects how, how you visualize the movie. Yeah, I mean, starting with those films, the early earlier films like Gone in sixty seconds and Swordfish with with Dom Senna. You know, the you know Dom was a fabulous director, cameraman turned director, and you know I shot a number of uh, very big commercial campaigns with him. And you know, I was at that point I was frustrated not getting films, and I kind of thought, okay, if I don't get a film the rest of my life, I'm just going to have to be happy with my career. And uh, was, Dom gave me a ring on a stage phone where I was shooting. a 
commercial and, and said, hey, let's do Gone in 60 Seconds. So that was the beginning, and it was just a fabulous collaboration because we both really respected the way we each other worked as cinematographers, and I certainly respected him as a director. I'd seen his movie California, so that was the impetus there to, to work together. And those are the times I started, you know, you, you working it out. You work out color palettes. You work out your level of darkness where, you know, suddenly you do a couple independent films, and then you're doing, you know, $100 million-plus films for studio. But creatively for me, I think I was able to use, you know, a lot of what I had learned from commercials and music videos. And and I had, you know, a director at the time who was very supportive of, of, of visuals, you know, Dom, and wanted a certain look, wanted extreme look and expected it, you know, so it was exciting, you know. I want to just pop back to Gone in 60 Seconds yeah. for a second, because it's probably about a $90, $100 million budget movie. And uh, looking at look mm-hmm. at all the work you've done before that, it doesn't look like all of the other projects may have added up to maybe the catering budget on that movie. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> yeah, it's like, no, but no, exactly. it's like you did a lot of, you yeah. did a lot of indies and lower budget sure. stuff. And now all of a sudden you're thrust onto the set with, I'm assuming a crew of a hundred people strong. Yes. Yeah. And now you're responsible for camera, for lighting, for, for mm-hmm. grip departments. And they're all looking at you. How, how, what's, how, what's that pressure like? What's that pressure going from, you know, uh, pretty manageable size sets where you're in charge to now a massive army behind you? You know, I think that, you know, the key to it is, is you know, first of all, you've got to you have to be at a certain level in your craft that you can handle the scale of a picture like that. You know, the weight of a film like this was pretty intense at, at first. But I think, you know, once once you get in and do a few you know tests with the crew and you you kind of move through your first few days, which are which were pretty funny on Gone in 60 Seconds for me, because I, I, I did quite a bit my first few days <laughs> went well. But, um, you know, you get your your confidence a little bit and you get going and you you know you go to the lab and you see your work at you know four in the in the morning on a big screen now you know you're on the right path and you're you're delivering and that's the key thing and it's um i just i i kind of think well that once i started shooting that film i knew the scale of, of what i would shoot would change you know but i think that you know the thing i've learned is whatever i do i take the same same approach and same responsibility as a cinematographer to the work and, and you know just been fortunate to have some really good opportunities and do some films okay so you're doing big action thrillers mm-hmm. franchises like pirates of the caribbean but i notice that you haven't ever shied away from commercials and i know a lot of people still like to you know like to do commercials because of mm-hmm. uh, sometimes short schedules and and maybe good paydays and, and things like that but if you had your druthers if you could only work in features or only work in commercials for the rest of your life do you, would you would you pick one or the other do you do you like them both what's what, what's your what's your feeling yeah, on this I, listen i like them both you know certainly commercials have been uh, one of the best testing grounds for features for me and you know photographically so, you know back shooting film and then early digital learning how to set looks with lookup tables or whatever you know but you know commercials really i mean quite honestly i do prefer features you know and specifically at this point in my career because you know and and having the opportunity to do a little bit of television with on westworld and even direct a little bit on westworld we're getting to that you're giving it away what did you think when the script for the original westwood pilot comes across your desk i mean and and we should also i should mention here uh of course you were uh nominated for an Emmy Award for the the work that you did on on that that pilot episode. When you saw it, were you like, absolutely, yes, a million percent? Or, uh, you know, how how does the process go of that coming to you and and you saying yes to it? 
potentially a, a pilot or a series? Well, I think in this case, Jonathan Nolan um, reached out to um, my agent, Bill Despoto at, at DDA, and, and Bill called me and said, hey, they're putting together this, this, uh, this pilot for Westworld, and Jonathan wants to meet. And um, there was no script. You know, there was just kind of a little bit of a, a description of... of of what the show is going to be and you know of course i know jonathan's work for you know his writing with his brother on the dark knight and uh, all the way back to memento and so i was very very keen on on meeting with jonathan and you know walked in and you know i think within five minutes i asked him if uh, if he would entertain the idea of shooting on film and he said uh no it wasn't an issue that we were definitely shooting on film and I was like, okay, I like this guy. And, uh, you know, that was one of those meetings where, you know, we instantly kind of dove in and the, all the conversations as we were doing this, we could do this, let's do this, you know. So, so that, that was very uh, positive that way. So I was, I was thrilled to kind of hear the ideas of the show for him and kind of that when I realized the, the, the level of production he was going after and how high the bar he wanted to set visually, I was like, okay, game on. This is a great challenge, you know, and it's been a great collaboration since. And, you know, he's somebody else who, you know, would love to shoot a film for Jonathan. You know, he's going to be a, a top, top film director. He's already a top television director. So I look forward to that day. They say that there's only a few ways that people really get into being a director. And one of the ways, one of the routes that people take is, uh, is through camera department, is through becoming, uh, through being, uh, having a career behind you as a DP. There, there are other ways, of course, you know, actors and writers and that, and that sort of thing. But from the below the line, from the technical side, really, DP seems to be the method in which uh, people get there. And you've just now, it seems, started to do some directing. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you how do you feel about uh, splitting your brain in a different direction now and letting giving up the reins of, of camera and letting someone else uh, get involved in that? How does that feel to you? Does it feel natural? Is it easy? Well, I think you know I've had a great opportunity recently on on, on Westworld where Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy gave me an episode. Um, you know they they've been kind, so kind. I mean, I listen. I shot the. The, you, the you shot the pilot, yeah. For a few years ago, and I shot, you know, the first episode this year for Jonathan, and he offered me episode four to direct. And the thing about it is, it's, you know, it's kind of daunting in the beginning because it's, you know, I, once once one is comfortable in one's craft, you know, it's great to kind of shine and do your do your thing, but to kind of step up to the plate with, you know, the, the kind of level of actors that a show like Westworld has, and it's not just one or two, there's like 10 or 15. And of course, with the luck of the draw, I thought I would get the the action a hallucinogenic episode but i got the dramatic episode with all the actors including new actors aaron paul and vincent cassell and of course still with with you know evan rachel wood tandy newton and ed harris and jeffrey wright <laughs> you know the, the so, cast is incredible it's an incredible yeah, so, cast yeah so so just but in terms of a craft and the whole thing it's you know working with a uh, director of photography john grillo it was a, it was a good experience um you know it's nice to have the shorthand it's nice to to know and have the experience of what can be accomplished in a day and how to react to changes in a day. And, you know, that was all a very good thing. But, you know, wearing two hats is, you know, I can't, you know, of course I, I am directing and editing and, you know, directing, shooting and editing at the same time as I'm going because of the pace you still have to go on a show like that. But it's it really helped me to have the experience of the craft as a DP going in as a director. 
And it also helped knowing some of the actors, and in this case, too, I had worked a couple episodes, you know, with with some of them, so there was a familiarity there, Um, but it was a great challenge, yeah. Uh, so uh, I don't know if there's any talks about it. Maybe I, maybe I'm out of the loop. But uh, Westworld, uh, another season, season five. Oh, yeah. Is that uh, yeah. oh, yeah. it's coming back? It's actually season four. It's, it's going to come oh, back. Oh, excuse yeah, me, they, season four, season four. No yeah. problem. So yeah. That, yeah. So um, actually, the good news is Westworld is coming back for for its fourth season. I think they they greenlit it pretty early on, like uh, when the show basically went on air this this season. So I think the writers will pick it up pretty soon, and you know I'm sure there'll be some kind of crazy scouting. And, and world tour with with Jonathan and the gang um, in the next few months. <laughs> so I look forward to that. Yeah, uh, no doubt. Were you in Singapore or Spain? I think it was yeah. or any of the, yeah for the, for your episodes. Yeah, it was. Uh... Yeah, I mean we start early. You know, we we started last January. We started scouting um, in different Asian cities and European cities to to kind of feel out what what the show is going to be like for this season and kind of collectively all scouted and came up with the idea of tying Singapore into uh, Los Angeles for the year 2058. And it's kind of a, a refreshing level, creative level that we I find myself working in as a director of photography with with these guys because oftentimes DPs are hired, hey, you want to, you know, you read it? Yeah. When do you want me to come? Oh, two weeks. Okay, great. When do you start shooting? <laughs> two weeks after that. But, you know. <laughs> In this case, you know, it's it's you know, it was it was literally, you know, six six months plus before we started shooting that we you know, we're scouting Singapore and Spain. Those are high budget features, sort of like uh, prep periods, which is which is yeah. wonderful. That really gets you gives you the opportunity to distill down to what what it is that you're going to be doing. Those two week preps, I, I got to imagine that uh, yeah. <laughs> when, when when you have to do that, it's um, it's just making the best of a bad situation. I mean, you, you, I mean, that, yeah. it never oh, seems yeah. like that's enough time for for the the stuff. Especially probably the bigger the scope that you're working on, the more locations, yeah. the more travel, more everything else. The more prep, so uh, so yeah. yeah prep that... is prep is great, you know. But I also had one recently on on Twenty One Bridges, where you know they put that movie together so fast. It was a property that was hanging about and put it together because Chadwick Boseman was available, and it was a property that Chadwick was interested in doing. And they basically jumped on a phone and they hired Brian Kirk um, out of London to do it. And Brian called me like three days later, and I, I hadn't worked with him, and he told me the story over the phone. I said it was interesting. He told me he wanted to do like a Lumet-style film. I was very interested, and he, I knew he had worked on bigger shows like Game of Thrones and Luther. And, and I was like, so when is it going to be? Like next, uh, next winter or something? And no, it's actually, he goes, I'm on my way to Philly now, and it's they want to shoot in four weeks. And I was like, you know, okay, sure, I'll be there, you know, in a few days. <laughs> so the reason I'm bringing that up is that it also, you know, was that was kind of the opposite, but it was it was a great collaboration. You really hit the ground running and you make decisions, you know, incredibly fast and they're very spontaneous. And that's a different kind of conceptualization, which I really enjoy, too. Yeah, flying by the seat of your pants, sort of. You know, yeah. you, you only have so much time to get together. But uh, you know, it's it's like jazz. It's improv. It's you know, you gotta you gotta make it happen. Yeah, so, uh, mm. all right. Well, hey, this has been a wonderful conversation, Paul. I really appreciate you coming on the show and and sharing some time with us. Where can people find you? Are you online somewhere? Do you do any of the instas or Facebooks or well, things? Do, do you have yeah, give a re- I do, do you have a, have a- out of date reel somewhere on a on a yeah, website? Maybe probably. Or- <laughs> uh, I do have a website. I think it's oh, you Paul- do. 
PaulCameronDP.com, I think, is how you get there. And um, and I have found your PaulCameronDP.com, and we're going to put that in the show notes as well, too, oh, so okay, people, can, people yeah. can find you. And it uh, looks like you do have an, an Instagram link here, and we'll put yeah. that in there as well. So if people okay, want to yeah. follow and see what you're doing, they, yeah. they'll be able to, to, to keep, yeah. keep track of Perfect. it. So. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, good questions. And thanks to you so much. And uh, I look forward to seeing future podcasts and stuff for Keep It Up. Yeah, uh, we'd love to have you back again sometime. And that was our wonderful interview with Paul Cameron. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Good luck at the Emmys. Kick ass at the Emmys, Paul. Thank you so much for being on the show. And now, short ends. So, Ilya, it is now time for our world-famous award-winning short-end segment. Yes, indeed. So there's a lot of stuff happening tech-wise right now and and camera-wise, and I thought about, really thought about uh, bringing more of that into the short-end segment, but I'm not, I'm going to save it for a week or so from now because then I can talk about a couple of new things that are really great. Uh, so deep tease. It's a deep tease for another week or two, but you know, it's not, not that deep, but if you like a really, really popular, well, I should say maybe the best mirrorless camera right now on the market made by Panasonic, they got a, they got a bit of a uh, September surprise coming in a couple of weeks. So, Oh my God, so, I'm going to have to ask you off mic what that's all about. Okay. Well, well we can, we can talk about it. Um, mm. But what I will say is I really, really enjoyed Lovecraft Country. Did you happen to catch Lovecraft Country? Uh, of course I watched Lovecraft Country and I also loved it. Yes. And you know what? It combined everything I love about J.J. Abrams and everything I love about Jordan Peele and kind of shoved them together in the first episode. And, and um, everything I love about H.P. Lovecraft. Come on. <laughs> Come on, I, give it up for for How, Howard 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 Phillips Lovecraft. I believe this is. Uh, yes. I have to admit ignorance. I'm I don't know much about Lovecraft. Oh, so, man. but I love well, the, the show. You so. know, you want to know part of the genius of this mm. is that Lovecraft was a notorious racist. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, notorious and an anti semite. And and this was told to me by Stuart Gordon himself, who I would say single handedly created the renaissance of H.P. Lovecraft when he made uh, Reanimator in the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. And and Stuart was Jewish. <laughs> um, but uh, Lovecraft was like a notorious racist. And so, of course, in Lovecraft Country, all the main characters are black. And uh, it, it, I mean, it's such a masterstroke. It's it's such a brilliant way to, to take somebody who is like, on the one hand, kind of a, a, a brilliant and much I'm not going to say beloved, but much studied writer, mm-hmm. and, and then literally hone in on probably his biggest flaw as a writer, and and to have that done by J.J. Abrams and Jordan Peele, yeah, a, a Jew and a black man. That's perfect. So all, it's like... all the way through. I just, I just, uh, I was, I was charmed by it all the way through, and the fact that they, you know, they made it Lovecraftish. I sometimes I, I have kind of a go-to shitty joke that I make sometimes when I'm watching a, a drama that is boring me, mm. you know, where it's like some indie drama about, you know, a, a middle-class person trying to figure out what to do with their life after they get out of college and they don't know what to do. First world problems. Yeah. yeah. When, and I, and my, my joke is always like, man, this would just be so much better if you dropped a werewolf in it. <laughs> and, and I feel like Lovecraft Country is sort of that, where it's like they're tackling like serious issues of race, but they're doing it with monsters. Oh, man. Yeah, it was a pretty spectacular pilot, and uh, now I now I can't wait. Now now I know that Sunday nights is going to be uh, you know all about me and watching H.P. Lovecraft. I can get you into some more H.P. Lovecraft, oh, man. Okay, cool. I'll totally do it. 
Okay, so Ben, what? Well, I hope I didn't steal your thunder. Was that wasn't your your short end? Was that it? was not my short end. I, I did consider making it my short end, but I actually have a for real obsession this week, Ooh. and it was kind of uh, kicked in, into gear by our our interview with Ron Howard. Oh, so I've probably mentioned it on here before, but I uh, I have subscribed over the years to Masterclass. I'm sure that everyone's seen the commercials for Masterclass. Never and. <laughs> yeah, if you've I ever mean, turned on YouTube, you've probably seen yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I've been besieged by them a time or two. So, I, I don't know, it was maybe like three or four years ago. I had just finished a project, and as a gift to myself, I, I like David Mamet as a writer. I think he's an interesting writer, and he had done a master class on writing. And judge me however you will if you hate David Mamet, whatever. I'm a fan of David Mamet, so sue me. So I was like, ah, you know, like I, I always want to do more writing, and I kind of want to hear from this person who, you know, is such a prolific writer and so, and so masterful. And so I got the master class, which back then you would pay for it one off. And then like shortly thereafter, they made an offer like, hey, for this much more, you can just have the whole library. And I've re-upped it every year and I really do watch them. And actually now you can get you can put it on your Roku enabled television so you can just watch them on TV like it's a TV show. So Ron Howard did a master class. And I've watched a few of the filmmaker master classes, including uh, one that I enjoyed a lot, Werner Herzog. But I don't feel like Werner Herzog's masterclass, I didn't walk away from it with like, oh, okay, if I'm going to go make a movie, here's what I need to do. I sort of walked away with it like, wow, Werner Herzog's a genius, which he is. But the Ron Howard masterclass is like nonstop practical information that like every filmmaker should know. And I, I mean, I really don't even care what kind of movie you want to make. If you're making like, you know, uh, a, a weird David Lynch-esque, you know, art film, or you're making a soap opera, whatever it is you're doing, Ron Howard's advice is so, so nuts and bolts, so practical. And he does things like, he does deep dives into his own scene work on movies like uh, Apollo 13 and A Beautiful Mind, but he also deconstructs a huge chase scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark and kind of goes through it shot by shot, kind of discussing how everything was done in it. And then he also takes a scene from Frost Nixon and uh, brings in some fresh actors who he doesn't really even know and stages the scene. And you watch the whole the whole process from them standing around and all reading scripts to all the staging to him figuring out the camera angles. And you, you see it all happen basically in real time. And it's never boring. It's 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 really good. And, you know, to me, that's the thing about Ron is he's such a such a journeyman and just so versatile and so good at what he does. And he talks about it in in the most open way. And I know I've mentioned before that I, I got to work uh, for Ron and I got to see kind of firsthand how he did what he did. And it was, you know, in my opinion, working for him was sort of a master class in and of itself, just kind of hearing what he said and how he worked and understanding his approach to the work, but then hearing him explain even how he does it. It's like, it's the the theories behind it. And it goes into every element of here's how you work with cinematographers. He talks a lot about cinematographers like Sal Totino, who's been on our show and uh, Roger Deakins and, uh, you know, some of these other amazing DPs that he's worked with. And it, it's just such, such an amazing deep dive into craft uh, I can't recommend it highly enough, and I feel like literally anyone who's listening to this show who's interested in how films are made would benefit from watching Ron Howard's Masterclass. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. That That's the highest praise possible, and I hear, and you have a Masterclass subscription, so you've probably seen it, but I hear that the Masterclass like, is almost interchangeable with the one that Michael Bay did. It's like... No, I'm kidding. I don't, I don't, I don't think. 
<laughs> no, I don't think I don't think Michael Bay did a uh, a masterclass, nor that Michael <laughs> that Bay and Ron Howard have the same uh, persona or instruction or. Uh, well, sense I mean, of... I I feel like when you're talking about like a list directors who do like exactly giant there's there's ten like Paul movies, yeah. you know, Ron is probably the perfect person to do this because I feel like he's one of the few filmmakers out there who still makes movies about people mostly you know like he's not making movies uh, no offense to people who love Transformers whatever like whatever you're gonna like but Ron has never made a movie about robots trying to murder each other he, he even yet. Solo uh, the movie Solo which is you know probably the the most robots and spaceshipy kind of things he's ever done is still really about the characters like it's still about the people in, in that world uh, I'll fight any of the Star Wars fans on that. That's a great movie. That's an absolutely great movie. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I think that, that the thing about him, <laughs> Shot by and, another you know, guest of our show. We, when we talked to him about uh, Rebuilding Paradise, mm-hmm. I just think that the stories he's attracted to are stories about people, and I feel like that's what sometimes is missing from a lot of films and not missing from television, by the way, no. like television humanity, is, is, humanity is, is yeah. very present in television and is missing in a ton of movies. And it's really wonderful to have, to have a director and have movies that, that, that maintain that human connection. That's, that's character driven and not just plot driven, but also like to watch him demystify the process, mm. you know, like, you know, I, I've been through the process, you've been through the process, but if you were, you know, a first year film student and you watched this masterclass, I feel like it would save your ass when you're making your thesis film, because when you're first starting out, you feel like there are things that you have to know and you pretend to know them when you don't. And there are things that you, that you don't know that would really help if you did. (laughs) And, um, and and I, and and I feel like, like, you know, Ron has this thing that he calls the six of one rule, which is. Uh, if he has an idea, if you're working for him and you pitch him an idea and he has a different idea for how to do the same thing and he decides that your ideas are roughly the same, he goes with your idea, not his. And the reason he does that is to empower you. And also when you, when he says no to you to so that, you know, that, well, you know, he's saying no for a reason. He's not just saying no because he's the director trying to shut me down. Everything he, all of his advice to me is like, it's not just good advice about uh, being a filmmaker. It's good advice about like managing a group of people or being, trying to be a leader. I think he got that rule from Jim Cameron. I think that's, no, <laughs> I think there's a lot of our tours out there that it's it's their vision, and maybe they collaborate. But there's but, nothing wrong with that. No, there's. I, I mean, there's I, nothing I, wrong I feel with like I feel like you can be James Cameron or Stanley Kubrick or whatever. But you know, I I actually, from what I've heard, like even Steven Spielberg works in a more collaborative way like this. And to me, like that's I, the one time I saw Steven Spielberg do a Q and A, he was talking about how you know, like if you want to have total control over over your art, paint a painting. That's right. And and that really stuck with me. And he's Spielberg, so he's working with the best of everything all the time. The best actors, the best cinematographers, the friggin', you know, third grip is the best grip that money could buy. You know, like, the best. And that's amazing, but also, like, then he trusts his collaborators. And my experience when I was lucky enough to work for Ron is that anyone who was in that room with him, he assumed you got there because you knew what the hell you were doing, and he treated you like a collaborator. And I feel like it's the smaller... Uh, and I'm not saying smaller budget. I'm saying like the people who are more petty, who don't act that way and people who feel like th- it, they're making this is their auteur statement. And you're just, you know, you're just the handle of their paintbrush. You know, to me, that's uh, it, it's it's weird to encounter people like that. And it's great to be reminded that there are people like Ron, who again, who work at the top of the business, the tippy top, who value the collaboration and that that's really what they're there for. 
you know, I, I think that actually when you're open to that sort of collaboration and it's presented to you and it's really good, part of your your judgment, uh, the ability to make to make that judgment call on what's a good idea and what's not a good idea also has a lot to do with humility. And because good, good ideas can come from anywhere, just like, you yeah. know, in, in Ratatouille, anyone can cook. Yeah, sure, it's it's possible. Great ideas are, are, are all around us. But you also have to know when to throw away some of those ideas. Some of those ideas are not are not good ideas. And uh, you, you need to be judicious. I, I remember back when I was in film school, I met Frank Darabont actually at an event, and he told a whole story about the very famous scene at the end of Shawshank Redemption when the rock hammer hiding place is revealed inside the Bible. And of course, uh, the, they cut out of the rock hammer beneath that. You can see that it's the chapter of Exodus. Which, like, you know, uh, Frank Darabont's like, that That wasn't in the script. I didn't come up with that. The production designer said, hey, check this out. What do you think? And he was like, yes, do that. Do that. 100% that. That's, that's, that's perfect. So, no, I, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, good ideas might be all around you. You have to be judicious enough to be able to recognize which really is a good idea, what isn't a good idea, and how to, and how to move on. That's part of what he was saying is like, you know, you, you establish trust with people by taking their ideas. And then when you don't take their ideas, they understand that it's not a diss. And it's not a it's not a power grab and it's not asserting your directorness. It's it's like, you know, we don't have time for that or no, that doesn't fit into the overall thing. But, you know, keep the ideas coming. And I can tell you, having worked for him, that's how he is. He wants all the ideas. And and uh, that's fun. It makes it fun because this stuff can be a drudgery when 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 it's. What, uh, working on something for several years and <laughs> it could be a drudgery. No, I mean this. It, it can be a, it can be a real drudgery if the person on top is uh, insecure or difficult or or you know doesn't offer the right kind of encouragement to the people uh, you know who are working for them. Uh, well said. So so Ben, I think that about does it for this episode. Uh, who do Yay. we have to thank? Uh, obviously, uh, we have to thank Alana Cody, who's our amazing producer, who uh, has. So many more episodes coming out. I mean, like, I just, I can't wait to talk about all the episodes that are coming out. Yeah, there's some, there's some good ones. In the can. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Well, but like Alana is sort of the mastermind behind how that, that's all unfolding. And so that's exciting. So thank you, Alana. We need to thank uh, Ben Katz, who, uh, who edits these and makes us not sound like stammering fools. (laughs) That's a bit, that's a bit tall order. It is. Of course, we have to thank Kay's Alatrachi, who probably isn't listening to this episode. I don't know. Maybe he is. He might be fixing your computer right now. He is actually right now fixing my computer, but he uh, he created 100% of the music that you've heard in this episode. Go to his website, musicbykays.com, and uh, get him to score your next project, or send him an email and say you like the music on the podcast, and, or and get it, him to score your next podcast. Come on. Ooh, yeah, he, he could do that. And if you're still listening to the sound of our voices right now, write us a review. It would be wonderful. It means you probably like the show. If you're still listening here this deep into the episode, go to iTunes, write a quick review to say what you think, good, bad, or otherwise, but we, we'd love to hear what you, what you think of us or, you know, if, if I, you, I really, this, this week, I only want to read the happy things, but yeah, yeah, you're right. In general, <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of other things you could do for us too, but if you just want to do one thing, write a nice review, a review would be wonderful. We'd, we'd love to hear it. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you very much, and we will see you next week at the Cinematography Podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.